0: Birthing a Nation: Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. Go out! Go out!
1: Go out! So, in December 2019, around New Year's Eve, I made the announcement on Instagram about making the decision of having a baby by myself. You know, I like to i work I work a PR. I like to control the narrative and get ahead of the situation. And you know. It's a way of normalizing things. I knew I I got into the stage. I was very happy with my decision and absolutely delighted um, with where we'd gotten to. But I just wanted to share the story so that it was told and that I didn't feel, I didn't want to be in a position where I had to explain, you know, myself or where it came from or repeat the story. So that was really the the reason for me to share it on social media in terms of my extended group of people. And I have to say. The swell of love and support and positivity that I got from you know my friends, family, and extended groups of people and people I don't know was so humbling. I have to say, you know, in terms of it, just felt like a moment in time. And even when I was going in and having Frank, you know, I remember saying to to, as grandiose as it might sound, but to a friend, it's like I feel like the nation is behind us. You know, I just felt this wall
2: of love and support. Hey there, welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and a Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Suzanne Kane, and I am joined, I should say, by producer Dee
0: Ready again today. Hey Dee. Hi there. Yes, I think we should maybe change my title to series regular. Yeah, I I think (laughs) you're
2: more so than producer than like you're just, you're a constant now.
0: It's the podcast inspired by an Instagram post, um, and Instagram features very, very uh, highly in today's uh, episode. But that Instagram post, which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those who had been affected by COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. And
2: that's exactly what we've been doing over the past seven weeks, Steve. Um, Last week was just it was a standard episode i think for me and um, i think if you listen you'll agree and i know everybody that's involved with it amory told her heartbreaking loss of her beautiful beautiful boy spencer and um, she spoke so eloquently i don't know how she found the strength but i'm so so humbled and so honored that she chose this platform to talk to us um and i I feel really privileged to hear Spencer's story and to know about her little boy because every baby has their own story, even you know, if you only get to meet them for a very short amount of time. So yeah, last week was it was such an important part of our puzzle, if would you say, do is that a fair a fair analysis?
0: No, I, I think that's spot on, Suzanne, because you know, like th- this is one, like, obviously, when we started recording this series, we, to a certain extent, had mapped out, um, most of and some of the perspectives that we wanted to make sure, um, that we gave voice to and that we were able to share with people. But Anne-Marie's story about the, um, the death of her, her baby boy, Spencer, um, is one, is one perspective that I know all of us as kind of, empathic people really struggled with how how we were going to find someone for that because to my mind and I, I suppose it probably makes me not a great podcast producer but you know better person and um, I didn't feel that that was something that we could ask somebody to share that we could ask somebody to give to us um because it's so deeply personal um and I, I don't feel that that would have been right and it certainly wouldn't have been within the the kind of spirit of what we're trying to do here. But I think hers is such an important listen because it is actually in its own way a testament, not just to her story, but to how much of a release valve that this podcast has become for some people because Anne-Marie contacted us directly and offered to tell her story. Um and actually when she first emailed me, I got back to her initially and I said, look, if sharing that email with me was enough of the release that you needed, then that's okay. We don't, we don't need to put it out to the wider world. So go off and have a think about it. And she did. And she went off and she spoke with her, 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 her partner, Brian, and and they made the decision together as a family that actually no, they wanted Spencer to be featured on this podcast. And to me, that's, Listen, he summed it up, actually, by saying that's just such an extraordinary privilege to to have been the people that um, got to share in his story.
2: Yeah. And do you know what? I, I thought about exactly as you said, because we had spoken about Anne-Marie's story in a production meeting before you had recorded with Anne-Marie and with Brian um, and about that email. And, and it just struck me at the time. And, and I know it was something that you had said as well about even writing the email. To put that down into words, because sometimes within our head it's like you know she's living and breathing that. But when you when you put something down in words or you say it out loud, it it becomes a you know part of of the ethos of what is out there that she has to say those words out loud. I just thought her bravery in even sending the email and and sharing Spencer's story, but to come onto the podcast and and you know tell us all about Spencer's little life, um and to speak so eloquently, and her partner, Brian, as well. I just, listening to you guys, you know, last week on the podcast was, you know, it was just, it was one of those things that I feel, again, just very grateful. And I'm, you know, so thankful to the men and to the women who have shared their stories so far on the podcast. But to Anne-Marie for sharing a little bit of Spencer with us, I'm really, truly thankful for that.
0: And that's the thing, like, as you say, sometimes just the sending of the email is enough. And there's, like... I don't think we realized when we set up that email account, maternity at go loudnow.com, which is still open, by the way, if anyone listening now today feels that they would like to share as well, please do, because we're always here to listen. And we 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 do try and make sure to get back to everyone um, because it's it's not just about what gets shared on the podcast, like the, the whole idea of this is. To be an outlet for people. Essentially. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was so important to us when we set off to do this, that we get to share in and share with as many people as possible, the different experiences and the different perspectives that everybody brings to the table in terms of this reality.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I know, if I may talk about our guest today, um, is that uh, Cloda is incredible. Like, she's so resilient. She's so upbeat. Um, She chatted to us about her experience about having baby Frank um, as a planned solo parent and the excitement and everything that went around with it. Now, I I listened to... Obviously, we get to listen before you and I have a chat, right? But I remember seeing Cloda's post um, when she posted about that journey she was embarking on. I remember just being like, wow. I'm in awe, like, in awe of Namina. Like, I just you know, I just, I loved how she put it out there. She owned her narrative of it, that she shared, you know, what that journey looked like. I am in awe of any parent who is running this Parenting Gauntlet solo, but more so, as you'll hear in Claudia's chat, about those little things, you know, that, you kind of just think as part and parcel of sharing, sharing his loveliness of baby Frank and, you know, that, you know, what we had done that day or his poos or, you know, all those little things that you take for granted when you have, um, a partner in crime, you know, be it even if you're separated, that there's another person there, but that she ran that gauntlet alone. But then I identified so much with her when she took out those walks in the park of lockdown and that you only saw a little bit of the head, but just that, just to be able to share your baby with someone and go, I have a baby, have a look, you know, um, so I, I really, really loved the story. And I think that when you see if I can enjoy listening to this, I
1: think that you'll love it
2: too.
1: I'm Cloda. I am a very proud solo mom by choice to a little boy called Baby Frank, who is 17 months old at the moment. He's just going through a myriad of temperatures like all other babies, but he is the absolute cutest thing in the world to me, and I am a very lucky lady to have him. I made my decision to have a baby on my own when I was on holidays in Croatia, sitting on a beach after a conversation with the doctor, who following some routine blood results, we had a very frank pardon the pun conversation about the need for me to have a baby. Now, rather than later down the line, based on my age and the results of all of my bloods. So that was in September. And the following, that Christmas and the following March, I kicked off my journey and um, through fertility treatment. I had him through follicly assisted IUI. I was very lucky in that the whole process of my treatment only took around six months before I actually got um, pregnant with Frank, which was phenomenal. I was incredibly lucky. So off I started on my journey to having a baby you know watching the clock over that first trimester um, every single lump bump pain nausea the rest of it you know kind of um, enjoying it but with trepidation along the way and then as it got to the halfway mark you kind of start to feel like you're on easy street and that's it and off you go and start the countdown begins and then you know come march of um, that year obviously covid happened and I am pregnant on my own, about to have a baby, and the world is a very different place. So during that month, um, when it was announced, the restrictions were first announced, I had sold my house a couple of months before. I was staying in a friend's house temporarily on my own, and I was waiting for a new house um, sale to close, which was supposed to happen every day. So as we all know, everything kind of just stopped for a while, and uh, I was definitely left in extreme limbo as I was at home really still I thankfully saying enjoying my pregnancy and the day-to-day because that was the most important thing but managing I suppose a sense of panic around me primarily about you know trying to get into our new home and making sure that that was settled before I had the baby in the matter of um three months I think at that stage and just thinking about the day-to-day of like what was the rest of my pregnancy journey going to be like you know obviously going into hospital at that stage for the checkups was a whole different ball game not that I had people with me to begin with but I suppose in terms of the prenatal care of going in for classes and figuring out you know what you're supposed to do in terms of the birth those classes were had stopped and actually I think there was one day I did actually have an anxiety attack at home and it was on the back of, you know, being at a prenatal class where hearing about the process of going in. And at that time I spoke up and I wanted a second person um, potentially with me during that birth, my sister and a doula. Just I felt I needed a different support network. And when I, I raised the question within the class, you know, I got kind of singled out about why I would need a second person with me and, you know, why was my sister, you know, not enough on my own and, you know, being caught unawares, I got very upset having to, you know, on on stamp, I'd just been asked to 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 give reasons behind my decision making. And I think it was around that time actually when I went home, you know, that for me was the first time that anxiety and panic started to set in about what the actual process of having a baby would be like and at that stage it was thinking about who could or couldn't be with me and that was you know the first time the restrictions kind of came into play where i had to consider you know how that would affect me and the birth of my baby at the time there was a lot of conversation in media around access um into the maternity hospitals for when people were giving birth and a huge amount of conversation around whether the partner be that same sex or a dad was allowed in um, I suppose not a huge amount of conversation was given around birthing partners or doulas or alternative methods. It wasn't really something to be considered or like an open conversation at the time. So initially, I I found that process quite upsetting, you know, during that experience in the hospital. Um, But I suppose with everything, you have to pivot and you look at it in kind of the best way for you at the time. And from that moment, then going forward, it actually simplified things for me because everything was stripped back and people were at the same level kind of playing field. And I kind of no longer thought about, you know, you only think about your own journey and what you need to get through the day. And I just knew that it would be me and my baby um, in the hospital. I was very relieved that I was having a um, planned section due to him being in the Frank breach position, ironically. Um, but that to me was the most important thing because I had some semblance of control over what was happening. I knew who was going to um, be going in with me for whatever space and time. And then afterwards, it would be myself and my son in hospital for those five days. And I, beyond that, all I thought about the day to day was, you know, getting him here, even in the run up to, um, going to hospital, it was quite a long period of being in lockdown. But I suppose I just took it in my stride in terms of I rested at home. I went for the walks. I stayed on the Zoom calls. And I think there's maybe a luxury in terms of it being your first baby because you don't know any different. And every day is a little bit of a like, wow, we're getting there. And you're so grateful, you know, And, and every day was a privilege because of the journey it had taken me to get to that situation. So I was a little bit in a bubble. Nothing could affect me once we were here on the day to day. Um when it actually came to being in the hospital and i had frank um the restrictions probably worked a little bit in my favor because again there was nothing to distract me in terms of my experience or highlight what we did or didn't have it was everybody in the ward who was just getting through the day and to be honest all i could think about was bur- pressing that buzzer what do i do now put them back on can i have a sleep Will you take them out? Bring them back in. And I suppose I, while I really have empathy for women in different situations who really wanted and needed their partners there, my pregnancy and birth was relatively straightforward and there were no complications. And the simplicity and the quiet in the room and it just being me and Frank actually was a good thing for me. When I was in the hospital, um, I stayed for the full five days because I had Frank by via um, uh, section. Um, I think I'm very lucky in that it was planned because I think for me, um, I loved knowing when we were going in, the safety, the control about it. And I loved that I didn't have to worry about showing my vulnerability to the, like what just sounds so hardcore of a natural birth without a partner. So, I do always try to look at the positives and the bright side of things, you know, but I think that's what you got to do to get through the day. I have to say, though, I was overwhelmed by the level of support um, and care for both of us within the hospital during those five days. And you really, it is a very emotional time when you're leaving and saying goodbye to those caregivers. You feel the bond, you know, that they've created and gotten you through those three days is just unparalleled you know and you just want to get this big hug outside and you're not allowed you know um as you're going and I I remember I initially I thought about leaving a day or two early because my mom was in Dublin so that she could see Frank and everyone advised me to stay and I was like no you're dead right I'm not ready to take the training wheels off um and you know when when you leave the hospital and you realize you are recovering from a major surgery it's quite daunting and. I was in a, I was in a state limo. I think one of the hardest parts for me around the, the pandemic was that access to support and care because I really didn't know what support I would need or want when I came out of hospital. And, you know, I just couldn't foresee it. So initially my mom was supposed to stay with me for four months. Sure, I didn't think that was appropriate, obviously, in terms of COVID and any um, risks I would put her at. Then I was going to stay with my sister for two weeks straight away afterwards and you know I got to her house she had the most beautiful welcome and decorations with my niece and everything and I sat down and half an hour later I just started crying I just wanted to be home in my own house you know so I shipped up everything and I went home the next day and I was bawling crying in the car on the way home because I was like I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what I need I know I need to be at home I don't know what I need around me and that that was kind of quite terrifying and the public health nurse called in and I was in floods of tears. But I just knew I needed to be there and to kind of start to kind of figure it out. And, you know, she came back the next day and I pulled myself together and all the rest of it. So we got back and I went for a walk in the park beside my new house that I thankfully managed to move into three weeks before Frank was born. And I got lost <laughs> and it's quite a small park in a residential area. That's a, the laneway through to my house. And as we were walking around and went a different way, I could feel the anxiety rising in me because I was like, I have no phone with me. I don't know how to get out. <laughs> and I don't know how much longer I can go, but we found our way out and I, I got home. And I think that was the first time that, that, you know, the realities of having major surgery kind of hit me. And, the following the following three weeks are 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 a blur and a whirlwind because, you know, I did have some, some family and friends and support around me, um, but I didn't probably have the full time care, you know, that you know in hindsight, I everybody knows what to do in hindsight. I would need to, I would recommend to others in that same situation, but it was an impossible situation because everyone was still so afraid at that time of what they could or couldn't do in terms of visiting. So, you know, there I had very few people in the house, but I did have some people in because I needed to survive. And, you know, but over the first few months, like all I yearned for was to be able to have, you know, a group of my friends in the house together, hold the baby, celebrate get to know him, give me respite just while I could go upstairs. And I couldn't do that. You know, while I did have some people in and out, I didn't get that kind of support. So I I got up and I got out after three weeks, I got up and I got out every day. And every time you you met someone, like you were on a walk. So first of all, they only saw the top of your your baby's head, you know, in a buggy as you're walking around. But also you just didn't get any downtime or a break. And I felt, you know, it's all fine now, but I felt We were really missing out on, I had him on my own and I wasn't getting to share him with my family, which is my friends and my extended friends are my family alongside my immediate family. Um, And that was sad for me. So on top of the tiredness um, and, you know, the figuring it out, the white knuckle ride of figuring out how to, what to do with the baby, you know, 24 seven and all the rest of it, which is the usual daunting stuff. I didn't have like buddies there, 24 seven or popping in, you know, to provide that kind of comfort and reassurance, or, you know, as I said, like, I just, I wanted to share him with the world. I didn't have a partner to share him with on the day to day and, you know, talk about the nuances of the wheeze and the nappies and all the rest of it. So that was limited, you know, but you kind of, you, you you feel it, you park it and you move on. And I think owning, first six months were really difficult and they were really joyous don't get me wrong it was amazing but you can't really let in how hard something is on a day-to-day perspective until it's well and truly passed because you know I didn't have the luxury of being able to say it was hard and getting upset and falling down or or feeling whatever because you have to just keep going and and I know every it's like that for every parent but I'm sure I think I did doubly feel that or it's not doubly feel it, it's the reality of it. One thing you know, you know, if you decide to have a baby on your own, you need to expect to do it on your own. And everything else is a bonus on top of that. Because everyone has their own commitments, their busy lives, their everything. So yeah, it was hard. Um but at the same time we will forever have joyous bond on the back of it you know there'll never be a moment where I look back and say I wasn't present for that first six nine twelve months you know and um now as he's 17 months old and you know beginning to think about walking because he does everything his own time He, he can do it he doesn't want to it's quicker on his knees you know it's still our life is still very simple you know while while Everything has come out of lockdown. We only really come out of lockdown for little visits because that's the life of a new mom, um, and it's great. So in December 2019, around New Year's Eve, I made the announcement on Instagram about making the decision of having a baby by myself. Um, I, you know, I like to i work I work a pure. I like to control the narrative and get ahead of the situation, and you know it's a way of normalizing things i knew i i got into the stage i was very happy with my decision and absolutely delighted um with where we gotten to but i just wanted to share the story so that it was told and that i didn't feel, i didn't want to be in a position where i had to explain you know myself or where it came from or repeat the story so that was really the the reason for me to share it on social media in terms of my extended group of people and i have to say the swell of love and support and positivity that I got from you know my friends, family, and extended groups of people and people I don't know was so humbling. I have to say, you know, in terms of it, just felt like a moment in time. And even when I was going in and having Frank, you know, I remember saying to to, as grandiose as it might sound, but to a friend, I was like, "I feel like the nation is behind us." You know, I just felt this. Wall of love and support, and I suppose after he was after he was born we we were on our own out in our lovely new home well it's lovely now, um you know, and I suppose it was hard not to have those people around us physically, but at the same time, it's quite the reality in terms of people's lives are busy, and in some ways while it was on walks and stuff, we still had access to people because everybody's lives stopped, so they had, you know, time for us in terms of who would have had time to go for a walk Monday to Sunday on any given day, which was great. And, you know, it was it was definitely try, trying and hard, but I suppose I do go from the stage of, like, everything else is a bonus. Like, the reality is you're not going to have hundreds of people around you the whole time, but... For for especially that first year of his life, um not to underestimate the value of the support through social media that you gained through that time. And I think because I was on my own at home, and I think every new mom and definitely first mom overshares to with an inch of their life, but that was my way of you know sharing him with people and connecting to people. And really it was the cheerleading of people who I knew and who I didn't know. Which really was so powerful and so helpful during that time, because also you know you are quite rest you, you you only have time for what you have time for, and your your support little bit of support that you need is like someone who you know that can come in and make you dinner and let you go to bed and go home. It's not about going out and it's not about the big fanfare and it's not about everything else it's just people being able to come in and give you a little bit of respite and I have to say you know. Instagram really was like a world of love and support at the time. Sharing my story on social media, I suppose have has had impact in a few ways, like obviously the love and the support that I got, but I actually gained a huge amount of joy and sense of pride for the impact that I feel my sharing of of sharing my story has had for other people so at that time, I got so many. I really feel it was a, a, a zeitgeist moment in time, because the number of people contacting me saying, "I've thought about it. I'm considering doing it. I wish I had done it. I would love to do it," or people who contacted me saying, "I'm currently pregnant," you know, by um, a solar p- pregnant on my own, and I was able to share the radio interview that they, that I did with their parents to help normalize it and just make it okay and. You know, I continually have people contact me over the last two years about it. And even over yesterday, I got a lovely message from a girl who said I inspired her 17 months ago and she was having her embryo transfer today, either in Spain or Greece. And like, I feel I genuinely am so proud because I do, I know how difficult it was to make that decision. While it might seem simple when it's in an Instagram post, there was years that led up to that. Years in terms of it being a backup plan, then kind of a maybe plan, then a okay, this is the actual plan. And going through the grief around that decision because no one decides, no one plans to have a baby on their own. You know, it's not the fairy tale ending that you expect, and you definitely have to go through a grief of accepting that that's not the way that I'm going to have my baby. This is how I'm doing it. Now, it's absolutely my not my first decision, but my best decision. And I'm blissfully happy. And I love that I don't have to compromise and I love I don't have to share Frank right now. But that's a journey. And to know that you kind of have helped people maybe race through that stigma a little bit and overcome that is brilliant. Even another girl was like, you know, I've been I've made the decision to do this. I was talking to my mom about it, and I was like, you know, what'll I say to people in work? Um I'll just say I got pregnant on a one night stand, you know, on a night eight. It's like now I'm just I'm going to be loud and proud. I'm going to be open about it and own it. And I think that's phenomenal. And, you know, I it's a moment in time. And I think maybe one of these days, like, you know, I'd love to I'll probably put something up on Instagram and see how many people do know people who've made that decision, you know, in the in the last year or two. And I, I think it's a moment in time. There's a lot of conversation obviously happening. Um about you know equality of children born in different ways and there's a number of different discourses happening and I'm really proud to be part of that discourse in sh- some shape or form and um, helping to empower people and you know be proud and, and less afraid of making that decision on their own because it it takes it takes a lot to get over it you, to, for me it took a lot to cross the finishing line and thankfully it wasn't too late for me but it might have been, you know, like I'd say it was cutting it fine, <laughs> to say the least. So, look, we're done now. We're happy. But, yeah, that has definitely been an unexpected um, additional massive positive from having Frank.
0: So that is Clodagh there. And, uh, yeah, I like God what an amazing amazing story like I know you said earlier that you remembered seeing um Clodagh's original Instagram posts like Clodagh and I have known each other for years um and it's it's something that I was just I was blown away when she put out the, that out there and I remember um I remember actually sharing it with um my mum who's not on Instagram so she would have missed it otherwise um and and almost kind of as a an, an introduction introduction to hey I might do this in a couple of years and my mum said something really really funny which was that makes total sense to me and I would have always thought it hadn't been for cloud I would never have sent or shared maybe that thought with mom. I would have always thought that she would have been reticent about it but she she actually said she she went that makes perfect sense to me because I would rather see one of my children um do this and know that I am allowed and th- that they are open to me stepping up and giving as much support as I want to and I can rather than being left wondering whether a half-assed partner is doing the stuff that they're meant to do but not wanting to overstep the boundaries.
2: It's funny that you say that because I love that she highlighted that people had shown parents that That post to say you know here's a little bit of a uh something I may be thinking about, because I suppose it's like anything it's that something that we we the optic is not the norm that sometimes you need that you need that little other optic to say this is what somebody else has done, and look how well it's worked out for them, and look how well they've been received
0: well exactly, and you know it the world needs people like Clade who are willing to put their head over the parapet and do the thing that they know is right for them because she's the very definition of the type of feminist who puts the ladder down for everybody else rather than pulling it up behind them because she could have, if she'd wanted to, done that privately and quietly and only told those who were close to her or, you know, she she even referenced in, in in her story about, someone that she'd been talking to wondering would they pretend that it was a one-night stand and and, and all of that. But there she's 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 actually managed, I think, to remove potential shame barriers that's, that's, that shouldn't exist. It. Yeah. Um by saying, I wanted this for myself. This was a choice. And by being able to say that and let other people see that there is <laughs> There is no shame and why would there be? It's the most joyful thing in the world. Removes those those shame barriers for other people. And I I just I I'm I'm proud to know her and I think she's phenomenal. Yeah, no,
2: she is. And I'm I'm so glad that she came on and shared the story.
0: For me, I think one of the most interesting um aspects of of Claudia's story was just how different her experience was to a lot of other people who would have had the expectation or the want or the need to have a partner there with them. Um, And I think uh, it's really important to hear that other side to it. Um, And, you know, I think the solo um, parent uh, perspective is something that is just, it's really not factored in when we talk about the maternity care experience. And I'm sure, Linda, like this would be a great um, point to bring you in because Yes, it is a it's it's I guess it's a minority group within a a wider group, but what are your what are your thoughts on that? And you know, have you much experience of people in circumstances like Cloda's or otherwise that might have been in touch? So I think <sighs> It, whether solo parents or minority or not, their
3: experience is valid. And I think that that they don't feel validated by the system is something we absolutely have to address. And it's something that Cloda spoke really eloquently about, about feeling really excluded by the language that was used early doors. And... You know, Sandy, who is one of the members of the Better Maternity Care from the very start, you know, had us all on the same page about using inclusive language, about not having that exclusive focus. And it took months, actually, for us to get the institutions and the media reporting around the restrictions on board. And, but I think that has happened now. And I think what's really interesting is just to see even those small changes that you can make as a group, you know, that maybe it wasn't intended around the maternity restrictions, but actually now, you, you know, you rarely see articles now talking about husbands, you see them talking about nominated support partner, the language being used by the HSE is a nominated support partner, and that's whoever you choose it to be. And I think what's really important about Clodagh's story is that we start to centre the people who are using the service as the people who should be part of designing the service because that's not what happens for anybody at the moment. So, um, you know, and I'm thinking back when Clodagh was talking about how she was picked on in the antenatal class for talking about wanting to have her sister there and wanting to have um a doula there as well. And One of the most bizarre situations in this whole campaign was somebody who contacted who was solo parenting as well, and they wanted to have their mum for the birth, but for whatever reason, maybe to do with mum working or whatever, whatever the reason was, actually it doesn't matter, but they wanted to have a doula come in to visit them in the hospital, and the hospital wouldn't allow it like the first answer they got about that was you're only allowed one person and it has to be the same person and we're not going to facilitate you and luckily that person got in contact and I was like do not accept that as an answer (laughs) like that has no basis in anything go back and I think in the end um it did work out or at least I hope it did um but I think it's all about that it's It's like every decision that hospital management are making in this whole sphere of restrictions. It's all about making life easier for hospital management. And it's not about actually centering women and families, whatever your family looks like. And I think, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about where to next. That's absolutely where better maternity care is going to next. And I think it's phenomenal to have stories like Clodagh and voices like Clodagh's in that discussion, because it has to be a service and a system that is set up for everyone. You know, Ireland for decades and decades, if not for centuries, has been always focused on being exclusive about othering people. And I think there's certainly a big generational shift now to move to a different way of running our institutions. And I think that will be if that's what comes out of a global pandemic that has scarred us all for life, well, at least that will be a positive. It takes me back, Dee, to an interview I had to do on Claire Burn Live on the radio with um Brenda Power and the presenter um who was standing in for claire started off by talking about well like what use are those big lumps of men anyway in maternity and just so dismissive of the role of a father in a family and um, and then brenda power toward the end of the interview said we should we as in women should be down on our knees thanking the hospitals that were having babies safely. And my husband, months later, still quotes this interview
0: because he's actually still can't get over it. The last thing we need in Ireland is Irish women ever down on their knees to an institution or organ of the state ever 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 again yeah look that like to be honest so many people contacted me about that
3: interview but it goes to show a really important point right official ireland as i kind of call it in inverted commas and um and the institutions that's where their head is at their head is at only the woman cares about giving birth, only the woman cares about child-rearing, men aren't interested in it, you know, and that's talking, they're not even in the space of considering families look like something other than a married man and a married woman, right? Which is also a huge problem. And then what we have is we have the general population who voted in their droves for social progress on LGBT issues, who voted in their droves, you know, for positive change on issues like abortion. And what we have now is this really significant tension between the critical mass of population who are much more socially progressive than our institutions. And apathy is the biggest, is the biggest driver for the status quo. And so it's really important, like one of the things that I think has really settled with me from this campaign, like it only started, like there's six of us involved in it. You don't need to have massive amounts of people. You need to have a goal and you need to have some commitment to it and perseverance. But you can make change in these institutions and you can move them from where they are in old official Ireland to bring them up to the space where they are. And I think one of the things as well that Cloda has highlighted that we haven't even been able to grapple with with the HSC is around what's happening when people are accessing fertility treatments. Because it's not governed by the HSE. It's not part of a publicly provided service. People are going to private operators who are well within their rights and regulations to set whatever rules they want. I think it was Evanny Quillen I heard make a a comment on Twitter about um, whatever about partner restrictions. My partner wasn't even there for conception um, because they had gone down the IVF route. And there is no, you know, we've had different documentaries, we've had different stories for all of the different reasons that people choose IVS. Why is it not a publicly funded service? Why is it not under the remit of the HSE? Why are people having to go abroad? Why are people having to go to private operators and spend huge, incredible amounts of money for something as fundamental as having a family, whatever that family looks like to them. And is that not a public good? Is that not a public service? Is that not something that we as citizens want every citizen to have access to? So I think I don't actually think Clodagh's story is that different because I think what we have to move away from is this idea that there's a centrality of the story of family, that there is only one family, that that is the good family and every other family is other. No, there are so many different families, so many different setups. And I think, you know, what Clodagh has done in talking to people about her decision to solo parent on Instagram and all of that is she has given so many permits People permission to name their feelings for themselves to their families, and that's huge, you know, not to be underestimated at all. So I think it's incredible to have somebody like Cloda tell their story as important, no more important or no less important than any other story we've told on this podcast, and that for me is the sign of a new Ireland that for me is the sign of the Ireland that I think most of us want to build.
0: Um, what what are the latest updates that you have for us um, on the work that you, you've been doing? I was going to say in the background, but it's very much not. So uh, we, over the last, we're the
3: 11th of November now. So over the last uh, almost two weeks, we've been asking people to log the compliance of all of the different hospitals with us. So... Um, I suppose the positive, uh, taking the optimist, the very stubborn optimist in me, is that compliance moved a lot quicker this time than has done previously. But uh, it won't be of surprise to anybody that there are still holdouts. So the black spots are Letterkenny and Waterford are two of the biggest black spots in terms of they have not moved on their visiting access at all Um, and that's really problematic and we've raised that with the HSC and we're encouraging people to raise that locally with hospitals because unfortunately the only language that hospitals understand and officialdom understands are complaints and written complaints and that is something that we have to encourage people to do and and then Mullingar which uh, you know I think I I touched on last week made some progress after there was um so much public pressure on them but it's still very limited compared to what is in other hospitals so we're continuing to log the compliance checks we meet with the hsc again at the start of December. But we are also starting to build, I suppose, people have queries now. Now that we've addressed a lot of the core issues, obviously we still have the issue about antenatal clinics, but people have started talking to us about the fact that there are no in-person antenatal classes, particularly for first-time parents. It's allowing us now to build an agenda around doula access, around access to fertility clinics, you know, that we can at least raise that with the HSE may have a way of raising that with the clinics and um, but yeah and we're continuing then to campaign to make sure the hospitals are compliant so things are going to get rowdy in Letterkenny, and things are going to get rowdy in waterford and that's what has to happen and um, because we're not i think you know there is no more women getting on their knees to thank hospitals there is no more women kissing the ground to thank some higher authority we deserve the best of healthcare we deserve to have a nominated support partner with us at a minimum whoever we choose that person to be and um, we're not going to take any less so i think it's really important that hospitals understand that and i hope that for the next um on saturday d the campaign is actually being honored by the labor party and um, we're getting a thirst for justice award at the conference Um, which is a really incredible uh, piece of recognition Um, and a strange one, given that we're still in in the throes of fighting the campaign. It's not over yet. But I really hope what this will do and what this campaign will inspire is that the next time people want to take on an institution of the state, whether it's the HSE or the church or something else, that we will be able to assist that campaign and say, these are the shortcuts. This is what we found worked. This is what we found didn't work. Um, And that we will share that with people. Um, Because I think there are, I was recently at a conversation and it's funny that it would always come together when you hear things. Recently at a meeting about the definition of a family within Ireland and how it's very much on the basis of a married family and exactly what Cloda described everything else Everything is made so much more difficult if you don't tick that box. And so I think, you know, it's time for people to kind of put the apathy aside for a little while and to, you know, pick up the issue that really stirs their heart and to just bring it to other like minded people and let's get moving these big old mountains
0: of institutions. For anyone who's listening to the podcast today who, Not unlike myself, might have been inspired by what Cloda did for herself and for her family unit. Um, Are there that you're aware of um, or that you've come across any specific resources or groups that they can get in touch with or or rely on? If that's something that they're considering doing for themselves, because I'm sure as daunting as a situation, it might have been um, when Cloda made that decision. No doubt it 's all the more so now, uh, given everything that 's going on so So where can people go so the, I think the answer to the question is honestly Instagram. I
3: think lots of women are on Instagram. And I think to external people, it's viewed as some sort of superficial shopping supermarket where they buy beauty and makeup. And that's what a lot of us are doing and what a lot of us are looking at. But there is also a huge community feel to Instagram around campaigning, around activism, around a lot of the different experiences that we have as women. And it provides a platform for us to share our stories with each other. And I think that's what the really incredible. Thing is around Instagram. I think that's what we have always found in Better Maternity Care is that it it's not a broadcast platform, it's a community platform. It's about people talking to each other. I have yet to see somebody reach out to somebody on Instagram and not get a positive response. So I think if somebody have a tiny little inkling in their mind about this might be something that you want to do. Look for the hashtags, you know, solo parenting, solo's journey, you know, follow Cloda. There's lots of other people as well. Um, follow them, listen to their story, talk to them about yours. And I think the other side of it as well then is for people, it is, it is difficult to act outside the status quo sometimes and it is difficult to maybe do something that you're the first person in your family to do it or it's not what your family would expect or maybe necessarily want and i just i think that's why clodagh and other women telling their story on instagram is so powerful because if it's what you want if it's what you know the star is aligned for you then you don't have to please anybody else and i think there is absolutely a gendered influence across all of our society of us being nice of us being likable i mean I'm using inverted commas here now no, I have to remember mean, I'm on you a did podcast. it in a way
0: where where the inference was clear from your voice, so don't you worry
3: <laughs> you know and like I'm sick of being a good girl I'm all about being a professional troublemaker from here till the day I die I probably was like that from the day I was born my parents would probably say um but I think it's just really important that we do what we want to do without apology and we center ourselves in this world that doesn't center us and I think if if every woman did that I think we would get to a better place a lot lot quicker
0: Totally agree Linda and I have to say I love actually that you know Instagram is uh, is your recommendation there because um, let's not forget that it was women's political spaces on Instagram that inspired this bloody podcast um, and um, it really does offer a lot in terms of that community and that safe space but thank you so much as always for joining us uh, today Linda, uh, you'll be back with us next week. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch with the show, you can do so at maternity at goloudnow.com
2: So that is nearly our episode for this week, Dee. As always, we want to give a huge shout out to the healthcare workers who have been toiling their way throughout this time. It hasn't stopped. It still continues. um, And we don't know where it ends. And I suppose, as Linda has said so many times, this is a bigger picture of a hashtag better better maternity care. But um, it sounded like she was uh, really well taken care of. And I know as I was as well. And it's lovely to be able to share that positive feedback too. her story is well. And truly, um, yeah, do you know what? It's everything I needed to hear right in this series. Do you know, that I'm so glad that uh, we gave a voice to a woman who went solo. And she's exactly as you said, she's she's breaking those taboos. I love it.
0: Absolutely agree. Would have quite happily chatted away to her for another hour or two more when we were recording that. And, as you say, it's just so lovely that we were able to share that different perspective from someone who had that different experience, And I'm just so grateful that Cloda as well was was up for sharing that and for telling us all about her journey and little frank
3: and what she spoke about in terms of the language and it being exclusionary in some places it's something that the better maternity care campaign has always sought to be very conscious of to make sure that people don't feel othered by us even if they do feel othered by the organizations of the state and because i'm totally with clodagh on this one your family is whoever you define your family to be and on that note, we have asked Cloda, as today's guest, what she would say to our Taoiseach and Health Minister if she could. And we'll leave you with her thoughts on that.
1: I think lots of people have many things that they'd like to say to the Minister um, for Health um, or the Taoiseach at the moment. Um, and I suppose I have I have a few thoughts on it. And I think from a from a from a maternal perspective you know for people who are go are are currently having babies like i just think have some compassion you know if you were to re- just think about it from a human perspective in light of everything else you know that's happening and restrictions being lifted it absolutely just doesn't make any sense and really you know common sense should prevail and absolutely have some compassion in making the right decisions um it is interesting, though, that there's a, a bigger conversation to be had. I think around solo parenting versus, you know, the norm in terms of parenting. And I think in Ireland, as a society, as a single person, you're discriminated against uh, from the get-go. You know, from a financial perspective, you know, trying to get on the housing ladder, the expectations around it, how you know you're 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 considered in terms of if you're single and you don't have kids and you know you're not married just like she, you're just out there having a good time you know all of the stereotypes that go with that but like from a financial perspective it's so expensive to be single and trying to build a life in Ireland um and then you know if you add having a baby on top of that my goodness does it get very expensive and you know that definitely I think is one of the significant barriers for people considering going it alone how will i do that and i was very lucky in that i was already on the property ladder before that and i've got you know gotten very creative in terms of my finances and trying to manage that to support you know an extra small mortgage in terms of child care so i think that um child care is a whole other issue that needs to be considered but i i do think that uh, consideration should be given in terms of solo parenting one in terms of the treatment, you know, um, IVF is there are, you know, financial aid for IVF for for those in couples. It doesn't exist for those who want to have a baby on their own and they're, um, they're discriminated against in terms of, you know, the, the taxes. And I was shocked to see how little more I came home with, you know, from a monthly perspective after having a baby and you add all the tax credits and everything. Whereas if I was married, that would be significantly different. So just, you know, I think it should be looked at from a family perspective. And while a family to some people might be married with kids, a family to me is myself and my son. And I don't think that I should be, you know, um, at a loss financially trying to build that life where I have to pay for more. Yet, you know, the assistance available to me is significantly less. Than that in a traditional um, family unit, so um, I definitely think that should be looked at, and some support given for single mamas. And that, and I don't mean that th- that we deserve anything extra. You know, like I have made the decision to have a baby on my own, but I feel that it should be equitable to what other families receive because this is my family.
0: Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bower Media, Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity maternityatgoloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D-Ready with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.